congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we read this letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, we sense that he was very fond of this congregation of the Thessalonians. This is no doubt why his first prison letter, and this is his first prison letter, that in his first prison letter, he addressed the congregation of the Thessalonians. This church is very small. It's a church that is troubled by persecution because you can read in chapter 1 and verse 6 that there is much affliction, so we are told. Nevertheless, it is a church that received the word of God, as we're told in that same verse, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a wonderful way in which we can receive the word of God, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. As such, the church of the Thessalonians was therefore a, an example even to other much larger churches, but an example of what it means to be godly and to be truly Christian. And again, as I said already, the Apostle Paul is very fond of this particular congregation, as we can sense also from what he writes here in our text chapter, that is in chapter 2, especially as you can read verses 7 and 8, where he says, and I quote, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Now, that's a wonderful thing for a preacher to be able to say to his congregation. And so, because of the fondness for this particular congregation, the Apostle Paul now pleads with the people, what? That they walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory to walk worthy. Well, that is what I want to speak about as well, because I'm told that you hope to celebrate the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day. And I thought, well, it would be good then to speak about what it means to walk worthy of God. And so let us then consider that. That's our theme, a walk worthy of God. In the first place, initiated by the call of God. Secondly, meant to be pleasing to God. And then thirdly, enjoyed in the kingdom of God. Now, congregation, whenever we prepare ourselves for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, we are called to do what is generally known as some self-examination. And in our self-examination, uh, we, we should get back for a few moments and reflect on how we came into being a child of God, how we entered into that genuine Christian life. When did this happen? How did this happen? And then in our self-examination, we should go back for a few moments and reflect on, on how this came about then and who was responsible for it. 
Perhaps, so let me just give you a few indications of it. Perhaps from childhood, you have known the love of the Lord God as long as you can remember it. You have always had a keen interest in the things of the Lord, his word and his service, even as you were still small. From the very first day that you can remember this, you enjoyed hearing Bible stories as your mom or as your dad would read these Bible stories to you when you sat on their lap, perhaps, and you came to hear these stories again and again. And you thoroughly enjoyed it. When you learned to read, well, the first thing you picked up was a Bible. And maybe not the King James Version, but a child like Bible, a, a Bible that children could easily read. And so you began to learn the basic teachings of the Word of God. And you did so with great pleasure. Attending church, oh yes, it was a joy to go with mom and dad to go to church as well and to listen to the preaching. It was always something that you could learn, either from reading the Bible or from the preaching of the Word, which may have been difficult at times, but yes, you learned more and more to understand what the preacher had to say. Or, and this is another instance, or perhaps it was different. Your childhood and your youth time were not so ideal. Perhaps you have come through a period of carelessness. And perhaps your early teenage years were marked with, with rebellion. Rebellion against your parents, rebellion against the established religion, rebellion even against God. But as you grew out of those rebellious years you've gradually seen the foolishness of that kind of rebellion in your youth time. And you've gradually become more serious about what the Christian religion is really all about. You've taken, you've followed confession of faith classes, and, and, and you came to the point of making public confession of faith. And you will not keep it a secret. Your life has changed. Now you love God, and you love his service, and you know that he, God, has been very patient with you during your years of rebellion. Or, and here's another instance, perhaps this was the case with you. Perhaps you have become a Christian in a somewhat more dramatic way. Perhaps the change in your life was rather sudden. Previous to it, you lived a life of sin, and you enjoyed that life of sin. God, the Bible, prayer, church, all of that, it could, be, could not be further from your mind. But something, something happened in your life, a serious illness perhaps, or an accident, or a breakup, or a calamity, or a death, and it changed your life for good, and for your spiritual good. Because now, you have become a believer a confessed believer, forgiven of your sin, and you too are busy preparing to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now tell me, in either of these three instances, who is to be credited for the way you are now? Who is to be credited? Who is to get the credit <coughs> for the fact for the fact that you are presently a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
for the fact that you now love the word of God and that you love the people of God and that you look forward to celebrating the Lord's Supper. Who has initiated all of that? I think you know the answer. It's God. It's God. God has called you to life and you may enjoy that life that God has called you to. In the first instance, well, God has been involved with you even during childhood. Like Timothy from the Bible, it could be said of you that from a childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. That means that God has called you already from infancy to walk in his ways. And how wonderful to be able to to admit to such a blessing. But remember this. It was God who did it. It was God who called you to such a life already at a very early age. The life that you may now enjoy was initiated through the call of God. The second instance, God too must get the credit. By his covenant of grace, he has been patient with you through your rebellious years. You've had some bumps and some bruises along the way. Rebellion, you see, is never an easy thing for human nature. Not physically, not mentally, definitely not spiritually. But God, in his covenant of grace... He has held on to you, and he brought you to your senses. He has led you to outgrow your rebellious years. He has put a spirit of common sense and a seriousness in you as well. He brought his covenant promises home to your heart and to your life. And again, how wonderful it is, dear people, how wonderful it is to be born under the blanket of the covenant and to enjoy covenant blessings including the covenant blessing of God coming with his word and instilling the spirit of repentance in you and also giving you the spirit of faith. These are covenant promises that God will give to those who look to him. And this was a covenant keeping God therefore who was at work in your life. A covenant-keeping God. The life that you may now enjoy is therefore also initiated by the call of God. Now what about the third instance? The third instance, absolutely. God must get all of the credit. If he would not have met you up, met up with you rather, in your ways of sin, it would have been hell and damnation for you to be sure. It is true. It did require a rather dramatic move on God's part to stop you in your hell-bound tracks. God had to deal rather roughly with you in order to get you to stop in your sin and to listen to his word. Remember, this was the case with the Apostle Paul as well. God had to knock him off his high horse, so to speak, and to blind him by his powerful light before Paul would actually bow and ask tremblingly and astonishedly, Lord, what is it you want me to do? Your direction has changed radically in your life 
after God intervened in that way. Your change has been like a change from darkness to light and from death to life. And now you who were once without Christ, as the Apostle Paul says, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, you are now in Christ Jesus, brought near by the blood of Christ. As Paul would say in Ephesians 2. And so we can say, wonder of wonders. You are now a Christian in covenant fellowship with God, walking in his ways, preparing now for communion at the Lord's Supper. But you need to remember this. All this was none of your or my doing. It was God who was at work in you and because Jesus Christ paid for your sins by his sacrifice and by his death, you may now be at peace with God. The life that you may now enjoy, dear people, was initiated by the call of God. Dear congregation, whatever God's way was with you, whether it was from early childhood or through the teenage years or later on in life. Examine yourself. Examine yourself as you prepare for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Is it clear to you that the life you now live was initiated by the call of God? Do you understand this? It's God who called you. Does God get the credit for this in your life and in your talk and in your conduct? When you attend the Lord's Supper next Sunday, will you do so in honor of his covenant works with you and in honor of the Savior, Jesus Christ, who is called the covenant mediator? This is, after all, one of the reasons that you should be coming to celebrate the Lord's Supper. You need to examine yourself in this, and you need to ask yourself this question. Is the life that I now live, is it a life that has been initiated through the call of God? And if you can answer this in the affirmative, please do not hesitate to attend the table of the Lord and partake of his blessings. Because this is why our text is walk worthy of God who calls you unto his own kingdom and glory. Such a walk has then been initiated by the call of God. <clears throat> but now secondly, as you examine yourself in preparation for the Lord's Supper, know that your Christian walk is meant to be pleasing to God. And in our text, the Apostle Paul, he urges the beloved Thessalonian people that they walk worthy of God. Now, walking worthy of God does not mean that you walk proudly in front of others because now you are a Christian. It does not mean that you may now have your nose up in the air because you feel yourself a little bit better than the other people all around you that you feel yourself a little bit more holier than the others around you. No, pride and snobbishness is not 
something that should be evident in any of us who plan to attend the Lord's Supper. Walking worthy of God, you see, means, in fact, the very opposite of it. It means to be humble, to be unpretentious, and to be gracious. Three words that I want to examine with you briefly. When you and I are called and urged by our text to walk worthy of God, it means literally that we are to live and that we are to conduct ourselves as pleasing to God in a humble fashion, in an unpretentious fashion, and in a gracious fashion. And so, as I said earlier, let me just explain those three terms to you. As a believer, you and I know that it pleases God that you and I be humble, that we be humble. This means humility in your relationship with God and humility also in your relationship with your fellow man. Or as the Apostle Paul says so wonderfully well in Philippians chapter 2, that you esteem others better than yourself. Philippians chapter 2. And so that's what humility is all about. Well, what, what about this word unpretentious? It means that you have a right estimate about yourself. That is, that you are well aware of this fact that you are not yet perfect. You do and you acknowledge you have your shortcomings and you have your failings. That at times you can be weak in the faith, you can be shallow in your love, and that therefore you do not wish to exalt yourself above others in, who are in the faith as well. And so you don't pretend to be a little bit higher than others. Unpretentiousness. The third word, gracious, I trust you know what that means. But that's also part and parcel of a walk that is worthy of God, a walk that is pleasing to God. God wants his people to be gracious people who are kind and, and caring towards others, who are gentle in their words, who are loving in their deeds and in their conduct towards others. Therefore, we have those three words then. Therefore, let us examine ourselves, dear people, in preparation for the Lord's Supper. Have you and I, have we learned to be humble, to be unpretentious, and have we learned to be gracious? Have you and I, have we learned to walk in that way that can be said to be worthy of God and pleasing to God? Now, the Thessalonian Christians, they were a wonderful example to other Christians around them. And still, the Apostle Paul had to urge them, even in his fondness for them, that they make sure that they walk worthy of God. May I not do the same thing, dear congregation? Especially as we examine ourselves in view of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Must I not also urge you as well that you walk worthy of the God who has called you? Must I not also bind it upon your hearts that your life and your conduct be pleasing to the Lord. That there be that humility amongst you as brothers and sisters in the Lord. That we do not pretend to be greater than the others. 
let us learn to become more and more gracious to one another as well. Remember, a spirit of kindness and care towards each other will do much good for the others, you see. Unkind words, backbiting, slander, gossip always does harm to someone. Not good, not good. It discourages those who are weak in the faith. It confuses those who are still seeking. And it will stifle the growth of those who are still newborn in the faith. Why should we therefore ever engage in harmful activities with our words or with our deeds? But kindness and care will build up. It will draw together and bring joy in the congregation and joy in the life of each member. Well, this brings me already to my last point. A walk worthy of God is to be enjoyed in the kingdom of God. In our text, the Apostle Paul urges the Thessalonian Christians in the following way, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And this word glory here means, and it implies joy and enjoyment. Now, my fellow believers, when God calls us by his word and Holy Spirit and we respond in repentance and faith, he not only calls us into or unto his kingdom, but he also calls us unto his glory, unto his glory. This refers not only to the future state. It does refer to that, definitely. But it also refers to our present state, our present state. Which means that life in the kingdom of God is a life where the shadows of fear and of sadness have passed away and is overtaken by a spirit of gladness and joy of heart. It is a life that is meant to experience what it means to know that the Lord God loves us and that he wants us close to himself. Now there are times, obviously, and we all experience that, there are times of sadness in life, the loss of loved ones, the loss of goods, perhaps a measure of persecution, or much affliction, as it was experienced by the Thessalonian Christians addressed by the Apostle Paul in our text chapter. Yes, they had to go through much persecution. But the love of God in Jesus Christ has put, that has put his kingdom in us. And we in his kingdom can transform our sadness and turn our sadness into joy. You see, God leaves no one who has entered into his kingdom permanently sad and permanently miserable. Now I say this because there are kingdoms in this world that are unpleasant places to be in. Kingdoms in this world, reigns and, and, and hierarchies that are repressive, that are poverty plagued, that are corrupt, that are hostile. In short, these are the kingdoms where it will be very difficult to be joyful and glad. But God's kingdom is totally different, totally different. 
In it, life is meant to be what it is meant to be, as it was ordained by God. You see, dear people, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of glory. In it, the winds of of joy of the Lord have pushed away the clouds of unhappiness and of sadness. And the Apostle Paul can therefore say to the believers, rejoice. And again I say rejoice. Now when did the Apostle Paul say this? When did he write this? While he was in prison. He said rejoice. And again I say rejoice. Why? Because he knew himself to be part of the kingdom of God. And so we too may learn to rejoice more and more as we know ourselves to be in the kingdom of God. And why can there be such rejoicing in the kingdom of God? Because you and I, as citizens of the kingdom of God, well, we have our sins forgiven. We are now known. We are now loved by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul, he could exclaim this with a good measure of joy in his heart. You can read of that in Romans 8 and verse 1. Now there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Therefore, dear people, as Paul exhorts us here in our text chapter, walk worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and into his glory. And he exhorts us most seriously and most urgently. As a repenter of sin and as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you may know yourselves to be beloved of the Lord. This hour you are therefore led by the word of God. You are led by the Holy Spirit of God to do what is fitting, therefore, in preparation for celebrating the Lord's Supper. That means, dear people, that you have something to look forward to. You have something to look forward to besides celebrating the Lord's Supper next Sunday. You may look forward one day to enter into future glory. When you will be with the Lord, you see. And you will see the Savior face to face. And see the glory of God on the face of Jesus Christ. Isn't that something to look forward to? Your joy will then be complete, you see. As you may see your believing loved ones who have gone on before you already to be with the Lord. You will see them again. As I heard, and I was in Moose Factory amongst the natives about a month ago, an elderly native, he came to me and he said, you know, I want to sing a song that I sang to my wife just before she died. Now, it was a very simple song, but something went like this. My dear... When you go to heaven, I know where you'll be, at the feet of Jesus. And my dear, when I leave this life, I won't look for you at the pearly gates. I won't look for you at the streets of gold. But I will find you at Jesus' feet. And that was what he sang to his dear wife. And then shortly after she passed away, at Jesus' feet, you see. And that is why we may rejoice and look forward to that as well. Because your joy will then be complete. You will have an eternity of unimaginable joy that the Lord 
is preparing for you as you have entered into his kingdom. Well then, as you prepare for the Lord's Supper, let it be done in the joy of the Lord. And remember this, after it is with purpose that it is called a celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's not just we are conducting the Lord. No, it's a celebration of the Lord's Supper. And it is in harmony with celebrating to look forward in a prepared way for it. So prepare to celebrate. Prepare to celebrate. Therefore, as you have heard at this hour, examine yourself in the light of the Word of God, our text, and ask yourself if you have learned to walk worthy of the Lord. Because, as I could underline it for you, it was initiated by the call of God. It was meant to be pleasing to God. And thirdly, it was meant to give you the enjoyment of the kingdom of God. Well, that is basically what I want to declare to you. And now we need to read the form as we have it in the back of our Psalter that leads us to uh, read about self-examination. And so um, I will look into our Psalter and we will find... On page 136, in the back of our Psalter, the form for the administration of the Lord's Supper, and I'll read only the first part that deals with self-examination. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, attend to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ as they are delivered by the Holy Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-29. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and, and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink the cup of, this, of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. That we may celebrate the Lord's Supper to our comfort, it is above all things necessary first rightly to examine ourselves. The true examination of ourselves consists of these three parts. First, that everyone consider by himself his sins and the curse due to him for them, to the end that he may abhor and humble himself before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that rather than it should go unpunished, he has punished the same in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Secondly, that everyone examine his own heart, 
whether he does believe this faithful promise of God that all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given him as his own, yes, so perfectly as if he had satisfied in his own person for all his sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Thirdly, that everyone examine his own conscience, whether he purposes henceforth to show true thankfulness to God in his whole life and to walk uprightly before him, as also whether he has laid aside unfeignedly all enmity, hatred, and envy, and thus firmly resolve henceforward to walk in true love and peace with his neighbor. All those, then, who are thus disposed, God will certainly receive in mercy and count them worthy partakers of the table of his Son, Jesus Christ. On the contrary, those who do not feel this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. Therefore, we also, according to the command of Christ and the Apostle Paul, admonish all those who are defiled with the following sins to keep themselves from the table of the Lord and declare to them that they have no part in the kingdom of Christ, such as all idolaters, all those who invoke deceased saints, angels, or other creatures, all those who worship images, all enchanters, diviners, charmers, and those who confide in such enchantments, all despisers of God and of his word and of the holy sacraments, all blasphemers, all those who are given to raise discord, sects, and mutiny in church or state, all perjured persons, all those who are disobedient to their parents and superiors, all murderers, contentious persons, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors, all adulterers, whoremongers, drunkards, thieves, usurers, robbers, gamesters, covetous, and all who lead offensive lives. All these, while they continue in such sins, shall abstain from this meat, which Christ has ordained only for the faithful, lest their judgment and condemnation be made the heavier. But this is not designed, dearly beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord, to deject the contrite hearts of the faithful, as if none might come to the supper of the Lord but those who are without sin. For we do not come to the supper to testify thereby that we are perfect and righteous in ourselves, but on the contrary, considering that we seek our life out of ourselves in Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that we lie in the midst of death. Therefore, notwithstanding we feel many infirmities and miseries in ourselves, as namely that we have not perfect faith and that we do not give ourselves to serve God with that zeal as we are bound, but have daily to strive with the weakness of our faith and the evil lusts of our flesh, yet, since we are, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, sorry for these weaknesses and earnestly desirous to fight against our unbelief and to live according to all the commandments of God. Therefore, we rest assured that no sin or infirmity which still remains against our will in us can hinder us from being received of God in mercy and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly meat and drink. So far, then, the reading 
of the form as it pertains to self-examination.